Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. and jump on Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, welcome to Countrywide. I'm Kim Honan, coming to you from the land of the Widjibal Wyable people on Bundjalung Nation in northern New South Wales, broadcasting from our Lismore ABC studios. Coming up, a seafood smorgasbord from barramundi to prawns to spanakrabs. Christmas lunch is sorted. I'm probably a little bit biased. I'll say spanakrab, uh, one of the more tastier. Price per kilo and what you get, spanakrab is more affordable than lobsters, maybe not as good as a mud crab. It just depends on the on the day. And an outback farming family has harvested its first major oat crop in years. And to the beaches north of Cairns, how a mob of cattle survived rising floodwaters. There was times at night when we were out there on the jet ski running around chasing cars and stuff as the water and that kept coming up and whatever. They, and that's what actually happened. We ended up putting them all underneath my house, all in the shed. Let's start in far north Queensland where communities, including the agricultural sector, are counting the costs of ex-tropical cyclone Jasper. A government recovery package will see $25 million in support for primary producers who have been affected by the natural disaster. And there has been widespread devastation. Let's start our coverage on a citrus farm near Mariba, west of Cairns. Grower Gina Galati described the flood impact to Lucy Cooper as being more destructive than the cyclone itself. Lots of debris in the trees and on the fence lines. Um, They've just gone for a quick drive through the orchard. Um, a lot of trees have, have um, like been uprooted out of the ground. Um, so now it's just a waiting game to see if we, how much fruit we're going to lose because we're coming into peak lime season now. So, yeah, we'll just have to wait to see how much fruit we're going to lose. Tell me, what was it like for the cyclone? Did you experience much damage when that system moved through? Oh, we'd, we'd go through the cyclone again and not to go through this. The cyclone was when it, when it passed, when it crossed the coast, um, we had a bit of wind. It didn't do any damage, really. It's it's the aftermath that's that's causing so much trouble for us, just like everybody else. When did you realise that the amount of rain you were receiving was going to be quite the problem? This has actually happened before, so they they were well aware what could happen. Once the Barren River broke its banks, they knew exactly what was going to happen. Me and my husband, we live up a little bit higher from the farm, so my in-laws come to our house. We're safe and high and dry up there, but unfortunately, yeah, the farm didn't didn't um, fare as well. You're situated right next to the Barren River, is that is that right? Yes, yeah, the farm is li- the Barren River literally runs along the farm. Yeah. Do you have an estimate of how much you might have lost? No, not yet. Not until we can really get out. Um, once the paddocks dry up, we don't want to go out too much and um, destroy all the paddocks. But from just a shed perspective, um, you know, we've got three pallet stackers. All the motors were underground, so they're pretty much all gone. We've got, you know, 450 bin gas room. That compressor is gone for that. Yeah, so once, once, once we can get a better assessment, we'll be able to, to fully comprehend what we've lost. Citrus grower Gina Galati and still on the Atherton Tablelands, mango orchards also went under, including Joe Morrow's farm at Baibura. The unfortunate thing is where I did have some mangoes, um, there's a big percentage of them will be underwater. Uh, and if it breaks bank, probably uh, what KPs I had are probably going to go. 
and probably some impact on some of on my um, palmers and labor. So I probably end up losing. Um, I, at, at the end, I probably would have had a reasonable crop of the late varieties, but I reckon I'll lose at least 70%, and that's just a wild guess at this point in time, but it won't be less than that. Quite the financial impact, then, I would assume. Well, yeah, it will have a financial impact, and there's no doubt about that, but, um, you know, it is um, it is what it is, and we'll do what we can to clean up. It'll be an extremely short season. We were expecting to run for a fair bit because we had the other varieties to help us out. The KPs were always down. I mean, as you would be aware... The Kensington Prides uh, didn't flower as strong, and uh, it'll have an impact in this Baibur area, but I'm not sure what impact um, the rain will have in other parts of the Atherton Tablelands or the Mariba Dumbula area. The issue there will be more how quick can farmers get into the paddocks if they've got ripening KPs on their trees. And also, larches are the other crop that's affected as well. Uh, they, they will probably, um, you know, if they haven't been able to harvest for a week, if they've product is ripe, uh, you're just going to have more uh, right downs. And on top of that, you have the increased problem that you have increased marking issues with the fruit. So it's going to be, um, we were looking at a reasonably good year, but it looks like um, little old cyclone has been very, very mean to this area with the amount of rain. And until this water moves away, it's going to be a big impact, uh, even with those farmers that are not that are not uh, flood impacted. They'll just be impacted by the sheer volume of water and inaccessibility inaccessibility into into their blocks. Mango grower Joe Morrow with Lucy Cooper. And the news does not get better from far north Queensland. The region is home to 95% of Australia's banana crop. And the industry is on high alert. Growers estimating losses in the millions, but also concerned about disease risk from the floods. Lucy Cooper has this special report. It's affected the property massively, actually. Yeah, the effects from the cyclone wasn't too bad, but then the, the follow-on effects from the rain was actually devastating for two of our farms, yeah. That's Gavin Islers, the North Queensland manager for Tropicana, a banana farming company based across the far north. He estimated the yield loss of bananas to be about 35% across two farms. Yeah, we're, we're looking above 25% on one farm and probably 10% on the other, but on both farms, the biggest damage is done on the structural headlands and stuff like that, drains, headlands, irrigation. That's where our biggest loss is money-wise. The financial impact will be significant. Well, I'm just fixing one hole and it's going to cost over $10,000 to fix one hole. It's going to be, it'll be in the millions, Mark. And calculating the amount of bananas actually lost is mind-boggling. 6,000 cartons a week multiplied by 12. So that's, that's just the initial loss. So what we've actually physically lost instantly, bang, gone. So doing those calculations, 72,000 cartons of bananas have been initially lost from just one farm. Between coming to terms with the crop loss, the financial impact and rebuilding the farm to begin operations again, Gavin Eilers has plenty on his plate, but now a new threat looms. For eight years, Panama Disease Tropical Race 4 has been present on eight banana farms in the far north. It's a devastating fungal disease. It's a huge concern um, because you can't eradicate it. That's, that's the biggest problem. And once it gets in the soil, it's there for essentially forever. So you can't grow susceptible cultivars in that, in that soil anymore. Professor James Dale runs the Banana Biotechnology and Research Program at the Queensland University of Technology. 
He said there is fresh concern for Panama TR4 because of the way the fungal disease spreads. It's been spread in water and that can mean irrigation water and flood water. In North Queensland, the distribution of TR4 is very limited. It's only in one relatively small area and the floodwaters most likely would flow into the local river. So there would be added concern around that local area that there's no reason to believe that, say, for instance, up in Innisfail, that the, the fungus will be spread up there by floodwater because of this relatively isolated area where TR4 is currently present. So good news is that the experts think this disease, if it were to spread, would be limited to the Tully Valley, where it currently has been detected on eight farms. But the disease, which, if detected, sees entire farms shut down, is always on growers like Leon Collins' mind. We've had a huge deluge in the river. How much that dilutes the spores, you know, the amount of spores that are actually in the area, that's anyone's guess. We've only had up infected properties up the top of the river. Now, of course, it has the potential to be throughout the whole river system. But it mightn't show up on new spots till, you know, it could take two years' time. But it's something we've got to live with and we've got to prepare for. We can live with it through quarantine and um, our biosecurity obligations that we do. And we run all on farm. But um, isolation, there's some things you just can't help and you can't take. Um, it's not going to help you no matter what. But other, other ways, We do all our good protocols, keep everything in place. We'll keep this thing slowed down to a minimum, just to a walk. The far north Queensland floods are a wake-up call for growers and researchers alike, renewing calls for new varieties to be grown. The the best lesson is from the Philippines, and and I can't remember exactly how many years ago, it's probably a decade or more ago, when when there was massive flooding um, from one of their typhoons uh, or hurricanes down in, um, in Mindanao. And it, it flooded huge areas of the banana plantations. And, you know, they're, they're a huge grower uh, of export Cavendish. Um, and after that, two to three years later, there was a huge blow up of, of TR4 and lots and lots and lots of plantations infected. And that really was the start of the, the real downfall for the Philippine industry due to TR4. We're not, we're not going to see that in Australia because at the moment we're starting with just one small focal area, um, but that area could be significantly affected. But as you say, it's a good wake-up call. This is how it can get around very quickly. Okay, we've got to, we've got to work towards those, those uh, resistant cultivars. Professor James Dale ending that report from Lucy Cooper. This is Countrywide. I'm Kim Honan. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia. On ABC Radio. Well, when the floodwaters receded in the swollen Barren River catchment, the scene was horrific. After nearly three days underwater, the familiar sea of green sugarcane crops had turned a muddy, putrid mess. For Eric Foster, the property he'd transformed from an abandoned cane farm into a fertile cattle breeding and horse adjustment operation had been devastated. He worked day and night to save his herd of 90 high-grade Brangus cows. The surprising thing is that all the other local farmers or whatever were getting ready to uh, plant cane. All their good topsoil and that's all washed over onto here, so the place just looks brown. So muddy, bit of crap everywhere really. How high did the water get here? Well, it went through every every house and every shed basically, like underneath them and stuff like that. So it actually went through the sheds. So they're higher than Q100, these sheds. So 
100 mil through there and it's about 100 mil higher than my house which is also above q100 what was your first consideration at that time uh we're, we'd run out of 4x gold we're in real trouble well we never lost one cow we there was times at night when we're out there on the jet ski running around chasing cars and stuff as the water and that kept coming up and whatever they and that's what actually happened we ended up putting them all underneath my house all in the shed and actually at one stage i come down the house downstairs in my garage with a brand new mustang brand new land cruiser and um the water was almost going in my mustang and there was a couple of kangaroos standing next to it a couple of horses half a dozen cows uh curlew birds and uh yeah they were just looking at me there was nowhere for anyone to go how do you regard the fact that you haven't lost a single head? Well, it was only because we kept pushing them around and sort of kept moving them to higher and higher and ground. And most of it, there was about 100 head here and they all ended up in my shed. So that's why all my welders and everything are all upside down and all my tools are off the bench. They didn't do much to help me. Didn't service anything. And there's uh, a few cattle still roaming around Holloway's Beach. I saw one trying to get a boat ride across the flat yesterday in the uh, the emergency rescue it came straight up to the edge of wisteria street as though it was like i'm ready for, i'm ready for my ride now yeah well that would have been number 23 she's a bit mad she um and she's got a calf over in the calf's been screaming out for the last two days i've told it shut up 300 times you're an orphan now but anyway mum came home so but i'll I tell you what they all did do i had 300 hay bales in the shed over there and they broke into that shed and i don't know they must have thought that was higher ground so they stood on top of 300 hay bales until they were all one one story high and they ate half of it but anyway so you've learned a bit about cattle uh, survival instincts and cattlemen survival instincts because this has kind of been a, a new career path for you in the last couple of years. Yeah, not only that, but the um, Barron Delta plan's about to get a rude shock because we're going to start building some of this up so we've got places for our cattle to go. So I don't know what Warren Ensign that are doing this week, but I'm going to start chasing them all and a few of the councillors and get them out of holiday mode and get them in to get me some approval so I can... I wouldn't mind building up an area over here that's 100 metres sort of wide and 300 metres long. And then I can put cattle yards on that, put horse yards on the other, and then there's somewhere too for the wallabies and all that sort of stuff during an evacuation. Plus, look, there's a lot of people in here in boats and stuff like that, and people trying to get out nowhere to go and stuff like that as well, which is, you know. And there was one guy, the guy on the jet ski, which everyone would have seen, he, he actually brought some people over here to the farm yesterday, which is a couple of the horse jet girls, and they actually come and help us a couple of hours trying to catch horses and put them back in yards, and we just make temporary yards and that up. And that old mate, I can't remember his name, but he, he picked a lot of them girls up and was running backwards and forwards from the over at the Barron Bridge. I think it sort of got everyone by surprise, and it, you know, I know everyone says, "Oh, you're in a floodplain," but it's not really a floodplain. It can rain here all day and all night. We don't have floods. It's only when all the water from up the hill. It's all you know by Bora Myola, you know Mariba. It just rained up there for days. I had mates in it ringing up from up there, and you know, a couple of girls from here had friends up there saying, "Look, we've just had 400 mil of rain at Myola," you know, and two hours later the water's come up a metre. You know, like it's just you know, it's just it's just hard for it to get away. Eric Foster, whose property is located between Holloway's Beach and Mations Beach, north of Cairns. He was speaking there to Charlie McKillop. Well, let's hear a positive story that a good dose of rain can bring. Major flooding has swamped parts of far west New South Wales over the past 24 months, but the wet has delivered rewards for one farming family. On Kalara Station, more than 800 kilometres from Sydney, they've now harvested a major oat crop for the first time in years, as Bill Ormond reports. The rolling hum of headers harvesting crops has been a constant in these fields near Tilpa for weeks. Julie McClure lives on Kalara Station on the Darling River, which is far from conventional cropping country. Traditionally, a growing area, probably not cattle country by choice, but given the opportunities with the flooding, we've been able to use that event to jump into some cattle as well. 
This time last year, she and her husband Justin were forced to boat around their property for months after the swollen Darling and Paru rivers burst their banks. While flooding occurs roughly once every five years, the scale of this event was larger than usual, according to Justin McClure. But if you look across the last two decades, it's five times in the last two decades. But a big flood like the one we've had gives us the opportunity to farm over two seasons. It's cash money that's injected into our little business and it can be very good to help us capitalise on a rare opportunity. It's a capital outlay that some people aren't prepared to take. With the floodwaters stretching out as far as 70 kilometres from the overflowing rivers, figuring out where to plant their oat crop comes with tremendous challenges. Tom Lansom is a contractor who travels up from South Australia to lend a hand. If you try and understand where the water does go and where it has gone in the past, it takes years. Justin's very good at it, he knows, but that's a lot of history, family history, and they're willing to take a gamble, which is brave, I think. Members of the McClure family have been running stock in the area since the 1800s. Justin has seen the price of livestock like sheep, cattle and goats fluctuate significantly over the years. It's one of the reasons the family decided to try and make the most of their location next to the river and living on a floodplain. Diversification has been, I guess, the key to the survival of a lot of Western Division people over the last 40 years. The impact of the wool recession has caused was created an environment where people had to diversify to survive. So we're very, very fortunate that we've got our land, our type, our country gives us the ability to diversify. Uh, a lot of people haven't got that opportunity. We'll just go for up the top of the dam and then I'll see you where you are. Julie McClure agrees. I think people out west are pretty innovative. It's just been unbelievable the opportunities that diverse nature of where we live. Kalara presents us with some magnificent opportunities. As the constant stream of trucks roll through collecting the organic cereal crop and taking it more than 1,000 kilometres to Mount Gambier in South Australia, the McClures and their large team of contractors know that it's important to set aside some of the spoils for the dry times predicted ahead. Planning is everything. Out of this event we've put nearly 2,000 bales of hay and silage aside and that's obviously for a dry time. We're used to long periods of dry but the smart way to manage that is to put product away in a good time for a bad time. The McClures are now planting their summer crops and are taking their chances in a tough and dry region, grain by grain. We're opportunists and being opportunists has put us where we are. Justin McClure from Kalara Station. This is Countrywide. I'm Kim Honan. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. Let's start our seafood smorgasbord special in the top end at Australia's largest barramundi farm. Humpty Doo Barra in the Northern Territory is having its biggest Christmas harvest on record. Max Rolly went to see all the action with Managing Director Dan Richards. So uh, this is the uh, getting towards the end of our, uh, our big Christmas harvest. So uh, the team are just, uh, you know, the fish are already chilled and they're just grading them and uh, packing them to head off to market for Christmas. How long do these fish take to grow to this size? They're what? The large barramundi we're looking at here are sort of up to five kilos, and they're uh, they're about two years old. So we've got fish everything from uh, tiny little barramundi larvae all the way through to uh, these market-ready fish uh, in the business. Right. So it takes a lot of time to get a barra onto someone's plate. 
That's right, yeah, we've got millions of fish that are, you know, have come through the production line over the last few years through the farm that are uh, getting ready to, you know, hit you know, big events like this, like Christmas. And so Christmas is one of the busiest times of the year for you? Absolutely. Christmas and Easter are the, uh, the big peaks. So this is actually our biggest Christmas harvest ever and uh, comes at the end of what has been a fairly tough year in the market with a fair bit of oversupply. Uh, and pretty poor prices, so it's uh, great to get a result like this at this time. Biggest ever? How many tonnes of barrow is that? So this week we're doing about 150 tonnes of fish uh, out, which is, uh, which is a lot for a Christmas. You know, this uh, last Easter we did 180 tonnes, so that was the biggest week ever, but um, it's the yeah, biggest Christmas and the fourth biggest week we've ever done. As you said though, prices have been down for Barrow this year. What kind of year has it been for the farm? We've built a fantastic team here. We grow a beautiful product uh, that's really reliable, uh, consistent, high-quality products. So, you know, the people and the fish and the team have all been going great. But um, out in the market, uh, there's been a bit of oversupply this year, which is uh, leading to some of the uh, competition dropping prices very low, um, probably selling fish below their cost of production, which is obviously not something that's sustainable long-term. How does that look into next year then? So uh, we're not sure exactly how long it's going to go. Um, it appears that a number of the farms in North Queensland have been uh, seriously impacted by the, uh, by the recent flooding and uh, so we feel for them uh, and that, that will inevitably uh, result in some reduction in supply into that market at the moment, in the, at least in the short to medium term. Dan Richards from Humpty Doo Barramundi Farm and from Australia's largest barra farm to the country's biggest prawn located at Ballina on the north coast of New South Wales. The local fishermen's cooperative has been a hive of activity as product is packed and loaded onto the last trucks heading to the Sydney fish market. I dropped by and spoke to the co-op's CEO Evan Davies. It is a very busy time of year even though uh consumer demand has been slow this week is starting to build to a crescendo as it normally does towards the days as we get closer to Christmas. And how much product is going through the co-op this time of year? Well on Christmas Eve we expect to do around about three and a half tonne of prawn and um, other crustaceans, crabs, um, bugs and that sort of thing, around about a tonne and a half of that. So Ballina really living up to the, the home of the big prawn? It is. We've had people, believe this or not, but it is true. I've, I've witnessed it with my own eyes, drive down from Toowoomba to get Ballina product. I mean, you know, Australian seafood, as we know, is the best in the world or amongst the best in the world, but certainly local Ballina product is the best in Australia. And that's testimony to the fact they want to jump in their cars and drive all the way down from Toowoomba to Ballina to get some. And aside from the prawns, what else are fishermen catching? Oh, they're catching um, uh, snapper, flathead, whiting. Uh, a whole variety of species are being caught. And what's the price of prawns at the moment? Are they, is it steady? Is it up or down on previous years? Well, um, we as a cooperative are very conscious of the fact that uh, our shareholders are the fishermen themselves and we sell their product. And with um, consumable product like fresh fish, you can't stack it away until the price goes up. So we keep our prices quite affordable, not only for the, the community, but um, it's important that we, we, we make it affordable to sell the product. 
but the other pressures that we're facing too, as our fishermen are facing, the cost of our inputs, like fishermen are paying more for their fuel to go and catch the product, so they're under stress to maintain their margins, to maintain viability, like we are as a business on their behalf under stress to maintain our viability. We've never been an organisation that's pursued super profits. All the profits we make go back into the cooperative itself. Daniel Fleming from Pottsville. Okay, so you're here at the Ballina Fisherman's Co-op catching the last truck to Sydney. Correct. Tell me what product you've got. Uh, today we sent it down spanner crabs, cooked spanner crabs. I've opted to cook them today instead of live due to being so close to Christmas. Not enough time for the fishmongers to cook them. That's, that's my idea behind it anyway. Do you normally get a better price for the live crab, though? We do. 99% of the time, it's better price for live. Uh, but at the last couple of days, cooks come, come in front by a, a decent margin. Well, you can't get much fresher than this. You're at the co-op, you're cooking the crabs here, then putting them in ice and then straight onto the truck for Sydney. Correct, yeah. So it's uh, some of the freshest crabs you can get in Australia this time of year. So they should be very happy down there. And is it just the, the crabs that you're catching for, yeah. for Chrissy? Yeah, just the spanner crabs. Just yeah. the, tomorrow I'm going out again for public sales in Pottsville. Um, but, yeah, today it's strictly down to Sydney. There's some big-looking crabs in there. There is, yeah. We've been picking uh, the bigger crabs out, leaving the smaller ones alone. Um, you get better money for the bigger crabs. Females are a no-take this time of year, and we try and leave the smaller and the medium ones alone. Just take large and extra large. And how do you catch them, and where, where are they caught? Uh, there's on dealies, uh, ten in a string with a bunch of floats and headgear above them and they're caught everywhere from 20 metres out to 70 metres of water pretty much from 1770 all the way down to South West Rocks it's a good good viable species for New South Wales and Queensland so very happy to be able to harvest them and how do they taste? Are they nicer than the mud crab? Are they as good as lobster? Where do you rate them? It's a it's a age old argument that one. Depending, I'm I'm probably a little bit biased. I'll say spanner crab, are one of the more tastier. Price per kilo, what you get, spanner crab is more affordable than lobsters. Uh, maybe not as good as a mud crab. It just depends on the on the day. And spanner crabs are funny. Their claw tastes different to their body meat, and vice versa. So. Very, very good eating there. Snapper crab fisherman Daniel Fleming at the Ballina Fisherman's Cooperative. And, of course, it's not just seafood on the Christmas menu. How about some turkey, if you can get hold of one? With less turkey producers around, demand is certainly outstripping supply this year. Let's head to Bordertown in South Australia and meet Lucy Dodd from Pooja Nagorik Free Range Turkeys. Uh, demand's been really strong this year. It's my first year as a turkey farmer, so uh, it's hard for me to compare to other years. And uh, definitely I haven't had as much supply uh, as uh, the previous owners had, but there was no way that I could meet uh, the full demand this year. Um, and general feedback I've been getting from butchers and other people is that it's, it's hard to find free-range turkey especially. So how many turkeys have you been able to supply this year? I've done 3,000 turkeys this year, um, which is only about a third of what uh, the previous owners used to do. And where are you supplying into, Lucy? Supplying right across Australia in some ways, into Adelaide, up to Darwin and across into Melbourne. There are less turkey farmers around, uh, and which just makes supply harder to come by. Do you know what's um, sort of driving the reduction in turkey farms across Australia? No, um, it's it's a niche market. I guess you've got to be able to find uh, your day-old birds and, and grow them out. And it's popular at Christmas time, but there is less demand throughout the year, so you've got to be able to manage that 
cash flow. But it's just not a, you know, it's not something that's done broadly. Did you come from a farming background before you took over the turkey farm? Yeah, we've got a um, family farm here at Bordertown and I was already a pasture-raised chicken farmer. So it made sense to, to broaden the, the poultry opportunities and as well as um, my farm has its own processing plant. So that was a big advantage as well. Are there any differences in, in working with chickens versus turkeys? Uh, there's a few, yeah. I sort of uh, didn't know that might be the case when I started. Uh, turkeys are obviously bigger, um, but they, they behave a bit differently to, to chickens. They're, they're very curious and um, a bit more of a flock animal than chickens are. That's Lucy Dot, a chicken and turkey producer at Bordertown in South Australia. And that is it for Countrywide this week. I'm Kim Honu. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time. <laughs>